0: bookstack with richard aldous the books and ideas podcast brought to you by americanpurpose.com coming up on the show richard thompson ford professor at stanford law school and author of the new book dress codes how the laws of fashion made history Uh, rich welcome to bookstack thanks for having me on the show so congratulations on the book let's start with an existential question do you still use a four in hand knot for your tie (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, I usually do. Occasionally, I'll vary it a little bit, but um, usually four in hand.
0: So so this is one of the, the nice things about the book, that uh, you begin it by talking about your father, who was a trained tailor, and that's where you learn things like the four in hand and the half Windsor knot, um, and picked up a taste for bespoke suits. So this is something that has interested you right from the very beginning.
1: Yes, I observed my father and he was uh, he was trained as a tailor as part of his education. And, you know, he went to school at a time when um, in many African-American universities or colleges um, had people train uh, and learn a, a craft as well as a profession in case uh, racial barriers kept them from. Um, practicing in their profession so he learned about tailoring and but he was also always very interested in his personal appearance he, he had a great sense of style and i could see as a child that it mattered to him not just for personal reasons and aesthetic reasons but also as a black man navigating largely white environments um, and he started as a university administrator in the 1970s um, that that uh, a, a kind of Elegant and dignified appearance was an important thing um, as a matter of uh, of racial pride and um, personal dignity.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that you uh, established very early on, that, that fashion and personal appearance is a way of communicating ideas.
1: Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I discovered in the book throughout history, um, fashion that was expressive... It was a way of communicating a variety of ideas from social status um, to social position to political ideals.
0: I mean, it's one of the the fascinating things. I mean, you go right back to the Middle Ages. You talk about uh, sumptuary laws made for the purposes of restraining luxury and extravagance so that people don't get above themselves Uh, in a more sinister fashion. You talk about the Jews in Renaissance Italy who were forced to wear uh, separate colours because they'd become too integrated. And later on, we have the fashion police in uh, 1920s New York. So on all different levels throughout history, this is has never been neutral territory.
1: Absolutely not. That you know, from um, there's always been social meaning attached to fashion, at least from the period that I studied, which was from the late middle ages forward. And this was when new techniques and tailoring allowed clothing to become much more expressive. And before that, at least in Europe, most clothing was draped. And so its potential to um, conform to the body and express um, you know different ideas of individualism was more limited. But um, as tailoring developed, the social meaning of fashion became apparent right away. And um, so, for example, Queen Elizabeth was, it was quite aware of the power of fashion, spent a great deal of time dressing in um, you know quite magnificent clothing, and it was clear that this was related to her political power. And as a consequence, it was also a problem for the social order if people from what were considered the lower orders Dressed in a manner that suggested that they deserved high status and that they deserved recognition as well. That was a political challenge,
0: and it's it's, it's interesting as well how that ties into this question of authenticity. I mean, you you talk about uh, Elizabeth I there, uh, but you contrast uh, one of her father's advisors, Thomas More, uh, who wrote uh, the book Utopia, uh, and the simplicity of style that he advocates there with the kind of sumptuousness of of the Tudor court. So, again, it's this same point that it's never neutral.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, in, in Moore's Utopia, he writes about, um, you know, kind of an ideal society in which everyone dresses in the same you know, relatively bland clothing. And it's such a marked contrast to the use of clothing in, um, in the period where Moore actually lived, in the society in which he actually lived. Um, But that wasn't neutral either. That was clearly a political statement against a certain relationship to fashion. It was a concern and anxiety about fashion. And I think we see that even in the present day as people suggest they don't care about fashion, but actually spend a lot of time thinking about what um, you know, what, what clothing signifies in other people.
0: Yeah, and it, and it is interesting that political context, which, as you say, is, is something uh, which is very much in the modern era as well. Uh, you talk about the flappers of the suffragette movement, uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, you were talking about it earlier, uh, which used smart dress to emphasize the seriousness and respectability uh, of those involved. And, and then some, the next generation that that comes along, which rejects that, and so we have the radical chic of black power. So clothes can be used in this kind of way to reflect a political sensibility.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and you see that um, you, I mean throughout history, but in the examples you just mentioned. Uh- the status of clothing in um establishing social dignity had been such an ingrained part of the racial experience in the United States from very early on in the 19, um sorry it's 1740s um there were laws in parts of the American South that actually um forbade blacks or slaves from dressing above their condition and had detailed regulations about the kind of clothing that they could wear and what they couldn't wear. And so right away, there was a the notion that a, um, you know, a, a black person dressed in high status attire was a threat to the racial order of the time. And that continued Throughout so much of American history, racist mobs would attack well dressed black people. They were derided as uppity. They were mocked in the press. So, when you get to the civil rights movement, dressing in um, Sunday best, in elegant style, was um, both a way, it was a way of demanding dignity. And that was an important part of the political statement that civil rights activists were making. No, but as you mentioned, at the same time there were other um, political uh, uh, priorities and motivations that motivated a new generation of activists. SNCC, for instance, the next generation of civil rights activists, wanted to dress like the people that they were trying to organize, and so they wore overalls or, um, you know, workers' clothes. And then, as you mentioned, the Black Panthers, who had yet another a new aesthetic that was designed to um you know reflect the idea that black is beautiful to reject what they considered to be a aesthetic of white america in favor of something that was you know, more distinctively um african-american but also a radical statement and a statement of uh, of you know a, of opposition to a lot of the American mainstream.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I really like about the book is that you're constantly complicating these stories. You never uh, just allow us to have easy answers. And and black and black is beautiful is one of those that I mean you discuss that many people criticised that idea that because it it becomes almost that radical chic just refashions a kind of traditional racism and just another version uh, of the of of the idea of the noble savage. So, again, these things are are never, never easy, are they?
1: Absolutely not. No, it's so it's such a rich language and a complex one. And each new use of fashion refers to older ideas, but transforms them in some way. Sometimes it's a critical statement on on the older idea, but we're always borrowing from the past. And that makes the messages sent complicated. I mean, as you suggest, there were many people at the time who felt that um, this new generation of black um, activists were, you know, kind of romanticizing poverty, or they were they were exoticizing um, racial difference in a way that was not helpful to social justice, and um, they were criticised for that by people within the racial justice movement. So this wasn't just criticism from outside, but disagreement from within the movement.
0: And and this is something which is uh, international, global, in fact. I mean, again, you have a fascinating discussion uh, about the burqa or the veil and the, the complexities of unravelling what that means in the context of European imperialism, uh, but also uh, women's rights. And, and again, how these things do not lend themselves to simple answers.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I spent time in France right around the time when um, the, the the new rules around the headscarf were being adopted. So everyone was talking about it. Um, and uh, one thing that became clear to me right away was that Americans looking at um, France from the outside missed a lot of what was going on with respect to that. Um, and it's quite complex. Uh, the you, we, we tend to think of um, Muslim women wearing a headscarf as having, you know, a kind of direct or simple relationship to an Islamic tradition. But in fact, it's Inflected with all kinds of different political statements involving post-colonialism and the relationship of Muslims in predominantly non-Muslim societies, there are also these important questions around gender roles and um, and and so some of the resistance to the headscarf is driven by understandable concerns about the role of women and the way women are um, expected to be uh, to to be modest and unassuming, and so that may the whole conversation. Quite complicated
0: and it's it's interesting to me obviously you are a Stanford law professor and quite a lot of these questions do actually end up in the courts and that's one there that you uh, that you were just talking about that uh, this question of the veil uh, in France ends up in the courts and they rule that uh, it's it's incompatible with the minimums of living together of fraternity and civility. Uh, what, what do you make of that as a law professor as well as somebody who's interested in dress codes?
1: Yes, it's very striking because from um, you know, typically we think of European societies as very progressive and tolerant. You know, there's at least an image among Americans that you know, Western Europe, in many ways, is a model for us to follow in terms of that. But with respect to these questions, um, the, the 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 human rights uh, lawsuits uh, came out against the women wearing the headscarves based on. Uh, Some deference to national traditions, um, but there's this this strong sense that um, the role of religion in societies in Western Europe, you know, has a somewhat different character than the role of religion in the United States, where the legal notion of what's called laïcité in France um, is, is... To define a space free of religious influence. Um, It's a different relationship between church and state than the one that obtains in the United States, and that gives a different um, outcome. So understanding the difference in the legal traditions is quite quite important in working your way through these cases.
0: I mean, something else that uh, ends up in the courts, uh, we see quite a lot of of examples of uh, misogyny, of sexism, and uh, a really very moving case that you cite about rape and 1989 Florida trial, um, which ends up with somebody who's been raped at knife point. Um, the jury foreman uh, at the end, uh, after finding not, uh, the uh, the person not guilty, uh, says that the victim had been asking for it. Now, I mean, we find those kind of words almost impossible to believe coming from somebody who's gone through a court case um, or people's ideas of them uh, in, uh, in uh, trials like that.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The um the the, the judgments, particularly around women's clothing, uh, could be so powerful, and um you know in many ways quite shocking. The degree to which women were expected, uh, and you know in many ways still are expected to kind of balance between a role, a decorative role. So women are expected to be you know a, a beautiful in a conventional sense, but also modest. And so the woman wearing the miniskirt was seen as. Um, a temptress who had invited uh, sexual assault. And this is an idea that has very, very old origins. I write about... Things in the Renaissance where um, people would say the woman who adorns herself in vanities um, is advertising her sexual availability in the same way that a taverner is advertising wine for sale. Um, and so this idea, you know, very, very old in origin comes straight through to the 20th, late 20th century in a rape trial. Uh, it's it's fair, It's quite striking.
0: And, you know, I suppose it's it's one of the things that is, again, it's a tension that runs through the book, this idea of what is expected of women and that somehow it is different to what is expected uh, of men. Uh, and that that remains a question whether you're talking about the Middle Ages or whether you're talking about the 21st century.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the striking things that I discovered in writing the book was the way that gender norms, um, even as other social norms were transforming in the direction of equality, um, gender norms were getting locked in and in some ways even intensified. So there's a moment in the book um, that, we're, we're, um, that, that some um, historians have described as the great masculine renunciation. And this is a time when men, um, but only men, cast off elaborate and adorned clothing that was before a sign of power for both sexes you know, so I mentioned Queen Elizabeth, but men, um, Henry VIII or Louis XIV, every bit as much, wore, you know, elaborate, sumptuous clothing in order to show their social status. But um, in sometime in the late 1700s, this begins to change, first in England and then in other places, where masculine power is now expressed through toned-down, sober, streamlined clothing. Eventually, it evolves into the three-piece suit, the business suit. Wow.
0: and to, and and you have a you have a very nice line where you uh, you talk about uh, women's shoes uh, and whether they represent sexism or empowerment. Uh, I think the line you use is something like uh, it's it's a very fine line to walk, especially in high heels.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you know, on the one hand, women. Um are often required to wear such shoes and there's been a whole social movement against it um but at the same time there are many women who like high heel shoes and find them empowering and they get criticized too um, so many people would say, well, you know, that woman has to be flighty or superficial. Look at those ridiculous shoes she's wearing.
0: What about um, cultural traditions, Rich? I mean, this is, this is something that has, has become very much part of today's uh, discussion. Um, where, do, where do you stand on the whole battle over cultural appropriation?
1: Ah, uh, yes. Well, I think cultural appropriation is an argument It's lumping a lot of distinct things together. So um, sometimes people are concerned about the lack of representation of people of color in certain industries and they, la- they, they describe the problem as cultural appropriation when, for instance, um, a white person is celebrated for something that people of color can't um, get celebrated for. You know, this example I use is Mark Jacobs had a fashion show where um, white models were wearing dreadlocks. And people said, that's cultural appropriation. But I think what they were really most concerned about or the valid concern was the lack of representation of women of color in modeling so that even when you're wearing a traditionally African-American hairstyle, he hired white models. But I don't think that the idea generally that cultural appropriation is to be uh, condemned, I I don't agree with that. Because so much of what uh, the history of fashion has been, has been appropriation in one form or another. A use of a particular, um, what we might call a sartorial tradition or a vestimentary tradition by new people in new ways. That's true of... um, let's say the zoot suit that I talk about, which African-American and Latino men used, they appropriated the suit from a different cultural tradition and used it for their own purposes. It's true of so much of fashion because of the the way we can make fashion mean something, the way we can make it kind of intelligible as a statement is by borrowing from the past. Um, So I think cultural appropriation in that sense is inevitable and in many ways something to celebrate.
0: Yeah, you actually say that appropriation arguments are in fact dress codes.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's saying, you know, our group and only our group can wear this. There's a way in which that's quite similar to the, um, the, the, the aristocracy in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance saying only we can wear, only the king can wear purple. Um, because we want to make sure that this signifies something, and if other people start wearing it, then it dilutes or confuses the signal. Something very similar there with respect to some of the cultural appropriation arguments, where you know only our group can wear this.
0: Yeah, dress codes can sometimes seem very stuffy, but 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 they can do good as well, can't they? That I mean, for example, uh, they yeah perhaps they're more socially egalitarian. School uniform, for example, uh, can uh, can help uh, students to assimilate uh, into a school more equally?
1: Yes, I agree. I'm not against all dress codes. And a lot of people are surprised, well, you know, at the end of the book, you you don't actually condemn the dress codes. Well, it depends. But a dress code can um, be a way of a group using the power of clothing and fashion to express uh, group norms. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently. As you point out, you know in some cases, a dress code can have an egalitarian effect. It can you know get, get rid of status competition and it can help create a kind of an esprit de corps. So there are good reasons to um, to adopt dress codes.
0: Yeah, as you say, if clothes matter, then there can be good reasons to control them. Dress codes can actually liberate.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it, it, you could even think of, again, the civil rights movement and the idea of Sunday dress as kind of a dress code. You know, it was expected that people would come um well dressed to uh, civil rights protests and marches and that was an effective and important thing to do at the time
0: well this is this is probably a, a personal reflection but uh, i have to say inf- i find informality much more treacherous than uh, than any dress code that uh, so often you find yourself left adrift i think the words that instill the most dread in me uh, are still oh wear what you like
1: <laughs> yes absolutely and this is one of the another reason that dress codes can have an egalitarian effect because in the absence of the dress code you're left to figure it out for yourself and very often um, that's a more insidious form of status consciousness because you'll see, I can give you an example, but um, that when the investment bank Goldman Sachs got rid of its, its normal dress code, which was suits and ties, um, they added, uh, but we all know what is and is not appropriate for the workplace. Uh, and you, know, you can immediately imagine, do we? What is appropriate now that I don't wear the suit? And people you know, kind of struggle with that.
0: I think that uh, during the during the pandemic, uh, a lot of people have found themselves having to struggle with ex- exactly that question. Uh, what what do you make of the of the impact of the uh, terrible thing that we've all been going through and its impact on the way that we dress?
1: Yes, uh, for a while, people. You know, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting thing because you. It seems odd to wear the clothing that you would have worn to the office on Zoom. Everyone knows you're at home in your living room on Zoom. Um, So putting on a suit and tie or something along those lines seems a little weird. But at the same time, um, you need to demonstrate some degree of professionalism. And people are also, as they always do, trying to express their individual personality and their status through their clothing. So what's interesting is you've now gotten a real new focus on kind of um, High-status athleisure or leisure wear, um, either, uh, where the clothing is relaxed but at the same time refined and at the same time it expresses you know, a certain degree of cultural sophistication. So people are worried about that. The other thing you see or people start to judge your background. Um, so they, they can only see your head, but they can see the, the posters behind you or the bookshelf behind you in the room. And so people are kind of evaluating that. So we have a new sort of dress code about your home decor. The site Room Raider has um, you know kind of popularized this, this new form of, uh, of social evaluation.
0: It's, it's interesting as well. Uh, you talk at the end of the book about generational changes. Certainly that's that's something that uh, I find myself that uh, fashion is, I'm old enough now that fashion is almost lapping me uh, mm-hmm. because I, I, I see young, uh, young people, students and so on in their formal shirts and their knit ties and uh, it, it all looks actually very recognisable.
1: Yes. It's really, it's interesting. Um, I was talking to the um, the creative director at Esquire, Nick Sullivan, and he was mentioning that, you know, you've got this new generation of, of people who say, you know, my dad wears tennis shoes and jeans. I can't be seen dead in tennis shoes and jeans. And so they're starting to dress up a little bit more. And so you do have, you know, now that's again, a new generation, you know, reappropriating an older style, but for new purposes, they are wearing, you know, the, it's hip now in in uh, you know to to where like what might be considered to be retro clothing or preppy or something along those lines?
0: I suppose the, I mean, the point that comes out of all of this, um, and which again you make in the conclusion of the book, is that personal appearance is not trivial, but and and also it's not static. Um, but to say that it doesn't matter really is just an an insult because clothing communicates. It, it still defines something about us, uh, whether we like that fact or not.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. And people spend a great deal of time on their clothing and it makes a difference. Um, clothing is, you know, it's really our culture draped over our bodies. And I think that a lot of the resistance to taking fashion seriously comes from a, um, you know, a, an uneasy relationship with the human body. It also comes from the fact that fashion has historically for many centuries been associated primarily with women, and so there's a misogynistic character to the rejection of fashion that's troubling. But in fact, everybody, you know, men and women and people from all walks of life care about how they look, they care about how they present their bodies, and they do in that sense have a fashion sense, even if the fashion sense is to say, you know, I don't care about fashion.
0: And you say that that fashion may not help us to fight the end Enemies of humanity, uh, but it gives us a glimpse of what we're fighting for. Uh, So, what is at stake?
1: Yes. Well, I think what's at stake really in this history of fashion that I've written from um, or the history of rules around fashion um, from the late Middle Ages forward has in many ways been a history of individualism. It's been the story of people saying, I matter too. So when someone dresses in an opulent, sumptuous manner in the Renaissance, um, in a way that mirrors what the aristocracy wears. It's not so much that they're trying to copy the aristocracy or to pass themselves off as members of the aristocracy. Instead, they're trying to say, I matter just like members of the aristocracy. As an individual, I'm important too. And that's a profound statement. That's a statement that I think is at the heart of what we call political liberalism. And that's what's at stake in fashion, that what we've developed, and it's a remarkable accomplishment, is that each individual can say, I matter. My story matters. Um, I deserve to be taken seriously. I deserve to have pride um, in my body and in myself.
0: And then finally, Rich, there's a lovely photograph uh, in the book of you uh, when you were younger with your uh, new uh, newborn child. Um, it was take, a photograph taken by your wife um, for uh, something that you were doing for Esquire magazine. Um, in the, uh, when you were interviewed by Esquire, you said uh, you listed some of your style icons. They included Cary Grant and David Bowie. Uh, I wonder now in uh, 2021, uh, who would your style here heroes, your style icons be today?
1: Ah, well, one of them is definitely my father and um, Miles Davis is another, I really, uh, particularly the early, you know, kind of Miles Davis at his peak is kind of kind of blue peak, where um, he had this adopted this kind of modified preppy style, but turned it into something that was extremely cool. I've always really admired that. Um, so those are a couple examples.
0: And it's and lovely to bring it back full circle to your father too. So the book is Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History, as written by my guest Richard Thompson Ford and published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, but for now, Rich, congratulations again. Really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for joining us on Bookstack.
1: Thanks, Gibson. Great talking
0: to you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.